Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Oh, that looks beautiful for me, Neil. It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like m- much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. It's the 21st of July 1969 and 17-year-old Robert Brand is at Technical College in Sydney watching Neil Armstrong step onto the moon. But unlike all the other students gathered around the television, this teenager's recent stint doing work experience has actually played a small part in ensuring those historic images are being successfully beamed around the world. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia in Conversation. We often overhear intriguing snippets of conversation, and this is what happened to me a few months back in the car park of my local shopping centre when I heard a man who was standing near my vehicle say something along the lines of, I'm one of the few people who can say they've single-handedly saved a space mission. Unsurprisingly, I couldn't let that go, and so I introduced myself to the man who turned out to be Robert Brand. Now 67, Robert has been involved in the space sector for half a century, and he and I spoke in his home in the Blue Mountains on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So where were you when man stepped on the moon? Well, I was back in class. What class was that? Okay, I was working at the DCA, Department of Civil Aviation Training School, and uh, learning to be a technician. And whereabouts was that? That was at Waverton in Sydney. So it was a very, very enjoyable time in my life because I'd had a rough time getting bullied at uh, Sydney Boys High in the uh, 60s, and then I went on, joined OTC, the um, 
Overseas Telecommunications Commission at the time. And um, they put me into four years of training, uh, the equivalent of TAFE, equivalent of the electronics and communications course, really. And uh, we learned a lot about civil aviation systems, which actually is helping me these days. And how old were you at this point? Well, I joined when I was 15. You because joined? Because I had left school at year, equivalent of year 10. It was uh, fourth form at the time and uh, bullied right out of school. But I never blamed myself. I always blamed the bullies. What sort of bullying was it? Uh, well, just non-stop. The whole year, in fact, was uh, involved with the exception of only a couple of people. And that was simply because the the bully of the year picked on me, of all people, and just that was it. No one wanted to cross him. And so it was very uh, isolating, I guess. Were you a good student, science, maths, that oh, sort I started of to be. And by the end, no, I wasn't so good. Because Still of the got bull- an A in science. Because of the bullying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very... Um, it stops you wanting to do anything to do with school. So you went... To- out of school because of the bullying and then went to tech. Yeah, and I had four years, extremely wonderful four years because there was just none of that. It was just good friends and good time and I just soaked up the uh, telecommunications and uh, without even studying I managed to finish second in the year. And what were you learning? What sort of things? There was the odd valve involved because that was the technology of the day back in the uh, mid-60s transistors there wasn't much in the way of uh, integrated circuits so everything we learned was really at the very foundation level of now what makes a computer it's just they've got billions of um, transistors in them these days rather than one or two so it's winter 1969 nasa's about to launch the apollo 11 moonshot what are you up to Well, it was a term break, and in the term breaks they sent us to different stations and different places in the stations so that we could get field training, so that we knew what we were doing practically. These are the OTC stations? That's right. And I was sent to the chief station, the good, really good place in my view, where everything was happening, and in fact they were on the floor I was assigned to installing the NASA Control Centre for Apollo 11. And whereabouts was that? That was at Paddington. And I grew up in Paddington. In fact, I was living at Paddington at the time, so it was a really easy one for me. Handy. Yeah, very handy. But you were really in the right place at the right time. Well, I was. It was an area I thought, this is good. And in fact, I got to choose Paddington later on when I graduated because if you do really well, they let you choose where you want to go. So a lot of us, when we do work experience, we're stocking shelves or photocopying something for us superior. What were you doing and what role would it play in the Apollo 11 story? Well, they probably had me photocopying stuff and putting things on shelves too. But uh, at one stage there, something unfortunate happened and a lot of gear in the control room got blown up. And all the people that protected that room and wouldn't let anyone in were in dire straits because instead of the room being finished, it was, my goodness, we have to start again and get all this new gear and power systems and everything else back online. They found out that I was um, involved in amateur radio and they said, "Okay, Robert, (laughs) you can terminate cables into this room, please, and start terminating while we do the work 
uh, of buying and shipping and freighting all the stuff from all over the world to uh, get this operational again. So when you say terminating cables, what does that mean? Well, putting connectors on cables, uh, wire wrapping uh, terminals and all sorts of things, soldering. Uh, so there was a lot going on in that room, even though it seemed to be doing just a couple of simplistic jobs. What was that room's role in the Apollo 11 mission? Its role was because there was only one satellite TV channel available to the US. We couldn't feed both Parks and Honeysuckle Creek's feeds over to the US so that the US could choose which one to uh, use for the mission uh, broadcast around the world. When you say feeds, you mean... TV channels, effectively, I guess. Yeah, so NASA was staffing the room during the actual mission and they had to choose which feed to send to the US because there's only one channel free on the satellite. The, the feed that we sent back to the US was available and the only other feed on the satellite was the feed that the US then sent to the rest of the world. And that's the Pacific Ocean satellite. There was also the Atlantic Ocean and all sorts of things. Uh, lots of stuff was happening around the world um, at the time, but this was purely the link between Australia and the US. Basically, just a room that was manned by about two or three people sitting at a NASA control desk, like you see at Mission Control, uh, and a couple of seats around the place to be able to handle the rest of the gear and test equipment and so on. When man landed on the moon, you were... Back at school? Back at school. Watch you, did you watch it on television? Yes, we did. They crowded uh, quite a few of us into a room. I suppose the whole of the school was in the room. <laughs> Plenty of people. How did you feel? Well, I felt pretty happy that I was actually... Um, I'd done the wiring that had completed that link. It, it wasn't anything magnificent. I mean, it was terminating cables. Just what I was small, doing anyway. Just a small part. It was... Yeah, it was what I was doing anyway, but it was for this mission. And I really can't tell you how inspiring that has been to me in my life. So how did that involvement, small as it was, in Apollo 11 change your life forever? Well, it led me to do uh, get involved as much as I could in more of the space missions. We covered every space mission, including secret US uh, launches. And although there was more of a hands-off approach to uh, the the missions. There were things that happened like Apollo 13 where other circuits had to be got up very quickly and uh, extra care being taken on everything. For those who and don't know, what happened with Apollo 13? Now, Apollo 13, as it left Earth and was on the way to the moon, it had a small insulation fault inside an oxygen tank and to stop all the oxygen sort of pooling at one end uh, as a liquid, they stirred it up with a little fan that was inside. Unfortunately, uh, a spark occurred with the broken insulation that had been there for years earlier, and they just happened to install that tank in the Apollo 13 um, capsule. And if it had gone into Apollo 11, it would have blown up luck of the draw, and uh, it blew the side out of the service module. Uh, oxygen tank 2 I think it was and it's a wonder that they ever got home but they were on the verge of dying and they had so many problems to solve 
that they only just solved the last one in time to be able to get to um, uh, to be able to land. Uh, otherwise, they would have not had the power to turn on their computers and get themselves aligned and everything. So you were listening to this play out over the radio? That's right. Whenever we were on duty, we'd have the volume up on this thing and we did very little work otherwise and we were just listening to this the whole time, uh, fingers crossed type deal. must have been terrifying. For them, yeah. <laughs> Anxiety-inducing A little bit of anxiety, yeah. Not Look, it wasn't too bad. I mean, it's you want them to come home and everything else, but you've got to realise, and I think I realised at the time, this is just one of many potential ways people can die. And, oh, for yeah, sure. So but it must have been extraordinary... I mean, almost eavesdropping on these on these blokes as they sort of fight for their lives, hundreds of thousands of miles away. That's right. It was, and but you know, I, I try to keep things in perspective so that I can actually continue to work and operate. Sure. sure. Uh, you know, you hear people say, uh, you know, uh, if they're in the middle of a war, for instance, you know, someone gets hurt, and you say, don't focus on that. You know, focus on what you've got to focus on. Uh, deal with that later so when we're at work we did what we had to do and yes it's not the only time we've been involved in life-saving type activities uh, you know people in Antarctica have died while we've been having to listen in because we were holding up you know HF radio circuits to Antarctica so that all the doctors can try and help save this, this person I think I was actually more physically emotionally involved in that than in the Apollo because now, these are Australians that uh, were in trouble. So, you know, there was a distance between the astronauts uh, and that, but you just wanted to do what you had to do to help. Now, Australians probably know of our involvement with the Apollo missions from the film The Dish. Tell us <laughs> how accurate or otherwise that film is and what's your take on The Dish? Uh, just this morning I had to respond to someone about uh, they had published something on Facebook about the, the dish. It's a comedy, a true story. And I thought, no, let me pull them up right then and there. Um, no, it's not a true story. It's, it's got some truths in it. Um, but we did not use Parks to um, uh, get the Armstrong feed of him stepping onto the moon. That came from Honeysuckle Creek, the NASA station that was, um, it was designed to do that. But Parks was a dish that was uh, had it almost six times the signal strength because instead of a 30-metre dish, it's a 63-metre dish. So you've got five and a half times the surface area to gather the signal and point it into the uh, focus point where there's a, an antenna in there. And that meant that they're bound to have a better picture, picture quality. So everyone was waiting for Parks to come online, uh, but Honeysuckle Creek did take those first steps. So that bit in the movie is absolutely ridiculous. And there were not a bunch of mungling fools either. So what did the dish get right, if anything? About the only other truth was that the windstorm was there and the uh, staff at Parks stayed in that dish when it could have col under the dish in the uh, control room when it could have collapsed around them because some of the wind strengths were massive and they should have put the dish into stow in the horizontal mode pointing straight up to offer the least wind resistance. And uh, they didn't. They stayed on track, which is pointed 30 degrees off the horizon, so the wind had the greatest chance of ripping the whole thing down around them. 
And I believe, I truly believe, they're actually more at risk than the guys on the moon because this thing, you know, it's a huge monster. Anyone who knows about sailing will know the strength of mm. the wind on a sail and how it can push you, capsize you easily if it's strong enough. And this was a great windstorm that happened. So this is Parks that's not going to end up taking the feed but is in position to do so, is that right? Well, it can't take the feed at this time because it can only point thirty degrees above the horizon. It can't go any lower because the dish is so big that it will touch the ground. Yep. So 30 degrees is about one metre off the ground on the edge of the dish. They were ready to take it as soon as the moon rose high enough and it was getting close. But Armstrong did step out onto the, the moon before Parks was ready to take the feed. It didn't have a signal. So that's why Honeysuckle took it, is that right? That, that's right. And even then, they wanted uh, to switch to Parks as soon as Parks did get the signal. But there was a great dispute amongst the NASA staff about whether they should. One wanted to, the other guy didn't. Uh, there was a bit of uh, tension almost to the point of <laughs> physical <laughs> intervention, I'm told. That's, uh, um, but uh, that's how tense it was in the room because one wanted to go because the signal was so much clearer. The other didn't because the windstorm might blow the big dish right off track and leave them with nothing for a moment and then they'd have to scramble and press switches to get it back. And they um, finally they did switch over to Parks and it was clear and everything else ready for Buzz Aldrin to step on the moon. So as a movie, the dish is funny. And that's about it. The other funny thing about the dish is they were just, for a comedy, they were so intent on getting the paint colours right. Um, had to be perfect on the uh, the whole layout. They used a lot of the spare equipment from the day, the spares, uh, to redo the um, the whole of the room uh, in all the original equipment. So it's still the right desks with the right equipment. It wasn't just a mock-up thing. But why? I don't get it personally when the whole story is is wrong. Do you think Australians appreciate the role that we played in the Apollo program? So I think it's a forgotten story because you've got to realise it's been 50 years and half, more than half the population has been born since then <laughs> and they don't have a clue. They never lived through it. They wouldn't know what was done. Uh, if anything, they'd probably go Australia. What, what did they do? Would NASA have been able to put man on the moon without Australia? Um, they would have used Asia. Uh, but when you're wanting to choose someone that um, you can count on, Australia was really a good place. Um, the Parks dish was phenomenal. It was uh, one of the world's best at the time. And uh, we had exactly what they needed for that. I first met you when I overheard just a single sentence that you were saying to a friend of yours, and that single sentence was, not everyone can say they've single-handedly saved a space mission. My ears did prick up when we started talking, so tell me how you got into the position to save a space mission. Okay, yeah, well, it's, uh, I'll just add to that. It was a single-handedly save a space mission already in flight. I'm sure enough people save space missions before they got off the ground. Uh, but once they're in flight, there's very little you can do about them and uh, very little reason for things to go terribly wrong, but they did. But 
That was about 30 plus years ago and uh, a lot happened between then and um, Apollo. Uh, so I'll just explain that. The missions for Apollo, we, my, the section I was stationed in covered those. Um, we you know, did things like start up diesel generators for power, we labelled everything, we patched circuits, we spoke on circuits, I mean whatever was necessary. But we went on to do Skylab and of course Skylab was a big problem because one of the sol giant solar panels didn't uh, open up and they had to go up and wrap it in a big space blanket and uh, all of that worked. And then back in 75 I actually went over to uh, the US and Europe for a year and I visited a lot of NASA sites. Um, the family I was staying with had friends in the business, even got to meet the president that year got me into uh, one of the multi-star generals uh, managed to get me into um, Andrews Air Force Base in the press meeting so when the president walked down from Air Force One on his way to Marine One he stopped for an interview with all the press and he looked at me and said you don't look like the press. This is <laughs> Gerald Ford? It's Ford yes you got it right um, and yeah I uh, you know, I did respond and explained what we were doing there, but it was nice to have a little chat with the president. Not many people ever get to do that, even in the US. They go, what? You, you spoke with the president? Uh, then we watched, um, we, we went to some of the places where they were hauling up aircraft and crashing them into the ground to see what the effect was. NASA was doing a lot of work in civil aviation at the time as well to um, make America strong. So you were acknowledged by NASA for your work on the space shuttle program, is that right? Yeah, I was uh, received uh, an award, a certificate, uh, thanking me for support of STS-1, space shuttle number one, space transport system um, number one. In fact, it was only meant to be one of three ways America would get to space, but because the budget was tightened, they never built the other two. So America was actually locked in low Earth orbit with the space shuttle and they couldn't go anywhere for all this time and it's only now that we're about to build spacecraft or they are that can get to Mars and to the moon again so there's just been no money to go to places like the moon because the shuttle took all of it and uh, it wasn't quite as reliable as they expected they didn't expect to lose two of them at all ever in the preparation for STS-1 I had done a lot of uh, work personally, additional work, and I was singled out on that one to uh, receive the award where normally they awarded the these things to the section or the station, uh, but I did receive that personally from um, John Young, which was really good, one of the moonwalkers, the first moonwalker I actually ever met. I did see Armstrong and uh, Aldrin and Collins um, in their Sydney parade, and, you know, the, like never think you're going to meet these guys. Never. They're up there. You were down there as a little technician. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So when was it that you saved the space mission? So it was 1986 uh, or thereabouts when I was um, I was still with OTC and I wasn't working in the section that looked after space anymore. I, I'd been sent somewhere else, but I did have a reputation of being able to deal with these things in a unique way. And ESA, the European Space Agency at Parks, was uh, looking after the Giotto mission and they were on site for a long time in preparation for it. And because Voyager was on one side of um, the solar system and the Giotto spacecraft that ESA had launched was on the other, they were handling the mission 24 hours a day, the two missions. They'd switch from one to the other and track one and then track the other and so on. And as the Earth turned, someone else would do the tracking uh, as, as they finished. And it was the Giotto probe that was going to go into Halley's Comet and get as close as it could to Halley's Comet uh, and take photos and measurements and everything else. Uh, a lot of other spacecraft had tried to go there and blown up because they didn't have a good enough shield. But ESA was able to get further than Japan, uh, Russia. I think Russia lost two probes uh, and the US. So everything was going really well except the circuits they had were failing, according to them, and they were blaming OTC as the circuits getting back to Darmstadt had uh, uh, just weren't there. They just vanished uh, as far as it electrically was concerned. Uh, so I was suddenly tapped on the shoulder to go pack some gear and go out there and expect to spend a week there. And I gathered up my gear, including this little box over here, which I built. This was a portable um, control room in a box. It actually was in line on the um, day of the encounter later on, which uh, uh, it, it served well, put it that way. Uh, it's a rarity to have home-built equipment in a space mission, and it handled all of the communications uh, so we could talk across data circuits and send tones and receive levels and all sorts of things. What was the problem with Giotto, and how were you going to solve it? Well, Giotto itself was fine, but it was the equipment that ESA was using that I decided was the culprit. And in fact, they should have checked this out. They should have checked it out a dozen times. And unfortunately, from what I can tell, ESA had made a bad um, decision not to help these people psychologically. Being out in the middle of a, a sheep paddock, <laughs> which is mentioned in the, in the movie The Dish, um, being out in a sheep paddock a long way away from the park's township and being stuck with each other for a long period of time, for a year, was not good. And the team decided that uh, having a few drinks every now and again might ease the pain, having, um, I don't know, it was a... They disintegrated a little bit and uh, they hadn't really been doing their job very well. So I stepped in and said, I, I can't fault these systems. I want to have a look at your gear. And I said, I'm not allowed to touch it. Can you just put that unit over there into self-diagnostic mode? And sure enough, failure. <laughs> it was a packet switcher. It, it switched all of the circuits from one big data circuit into several voice circuits that you could send overseas. The other end reassembled it. The issue was that 
no one had done the, this test. And I, I just said to the guy, you know, I worked 24 hours um, straight. And prior to that, I'd had eight hours off. And when I first got there, I worked 36 hours straight. I mean, it's the sort of thing they used to do in submarines when they were being attacked. You just didn't sleep. And uh, it was a, um, a very difficult time. And I just said, OK. I, I said to the boss, I've discovered the problem. It's in your equipment over there, in which case I, I got um, verbally slapped in the face and told to go back to uh, uh, to Parks and just wait at the hotel and, um, you know, that I was an absolute idiot. Of course they would have checked all of this. Um, it took three days. They sent up a senior engineer from, uh, from Sydney, a good friend of mine over the years, Paul Kirkin, who's passed on by now, and he... Um, he was an undersea cable specialist and unfortunately knew nothing about space or what I was doing or anything, actually. Um, it was a case of, he said, tell me all of the problems, and they weren't as simple as I've just said. And uh, he went into the meetings, engineer to engineer, uh, with ESA. For three days they had these meetings. Then I was called back and I thought, oh dear, what, what are they going to say now? You know, I, I know the reality of this and I hope they get it right. I get called back, no apology, and I'm thinking, oh, they haven't started with an apology, this looks bad. But the head of the mission uh, basically said, Robert, you've been seconded to the ESA mission, you're now part of ESA for the time being, and uh, we, your job is to make sure my staff don't do anything stupid like that again. <laughs> If you hadn't saved the day, what would have been lost? Uh, it was the main data going back from the spacecraft to the to Darmstadt, the European Space Agency headquarters. So this is data that the Giotto is collecting about Halley's in the closest ever approach? Everything, even pictures. So all of it would have not made it back. But they did have these big reel-to-reel tapes where they were saving the backup. Now, I was quite diligent in working out all of the problems I could with the ESA equipment. I didn't just stop there. And um, I got them to check all sorts of things, including the driver on the tape uh, unit. Basically, the software that underpinned the big tape machine they had was not the latest. And it was known to fail under heavy load conditions. So it would have been fine the whole time until they actually got to the point where they were sending back all these pictures and the bandwidth just went through the roof and it could have failed, definitely could have failed. So they lost everything for the whole mission. So without you, we might not know what we oh, know about Halley's. Someone else might have saved it. Let's, That's let's, very, let, very modest of you. Let's say that, no, we're all pretty good at OTC, but my little box was what actually made this thing dead easy for me. And um, if I have video of this that's online um, on my YouTube channel, and you can actually see that little box in the video being utilised. What's the YouTube channel called? Robert Brand. That's very, it's very on brand <laughs> of you, Robert. So Giotto was over 30 years ago. Yes. And you've been involved in space since then? <sighs> very much so in the last 10 years. But... After Giotto, um, I think the Arian uh, rocket blew up. The US weren't, um, had lost a, sh a shuttle, and there was a big air, a number of years that nothing happened. 
And I sort of ended up then drifting off doing other things. Um, I was doing a lot of physical things. I was, a, I suppose, one of those people that did every crazy sport in, in the book. I'd, I'd be jumping off <laughs> all sorts of places like the uh, Great Australian Bite, down exploring caves on the cliff line and uh, then climbing back up. <laughs> Uh, being attacked by sea lions and almost losing my life. Uh, that was a different problem. Uh, same place, though. Um, and, uh, you know, flying ultralight uh, machines, putting you know, put a, a pack on with a motor on my back and a propeller and a soft parachute type of wing, fly around the sky. <laughs> um, there was nothing I wasn't doing. I was uh, diving with uh, great whites in their area without a cage or anything. Um, pulling abalone off rocks and a bit of a thrill seeker. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, caving, a bit of diving down at uh, Mount Gambier in the um, sinkholes, and on and on it went. So, when did you get involved in the space sector again? When I got too old to be doing all that stuff. <laughs> uh, I, I sort of got a real big interest again. Um, my son was uh, age nine, and he had shown a great interest in all sorts of uh, things that I was doing and I thought this is great okay so I decided as a bit of a bonding exercise we would do what I'd seen a few people doing around the world which was to put a balloon into the stratosphere and track it now, he's age 90 17 now so this is about eight years ago when I did this bit so we went out to a place called Rankin Springs which is an hour's drive west of West Wylong so we did that and we recovered it and we have beautiful photos taken at 26 kilometres, 26, over 26 kilometres. You can see sideways uh, 100 kilome 160 kilometres to the Murrumbidgee River and that's through the atmosphere. So um, the atmosphere is incredibly clear in Australia. You know, you talk about 10 kilometres uh, visibility in the US as being an okay day. Uh, we've now done 40 flights and we've recovered all 40 so we sort of hold a, a world record in 100% uh, recoveries of even things we didn't intend to recover. So, so footage from these balloon flights can be seen on your YouTube channel? Oh yeah definitely. Um, one, one very good one was um, if you just search YouTube um, MYOB and space you'll find uh, one that we did for uh, revealing the new logo for MYOB the accounting software uh, we revealed that at uh, 32 kilometers altitude almost a third of the way to space so you've had a little bit of commercial interest in these ballooning flights in terms of sponsorship well they cover the costs of uh, our fun I guess you could say nice. but um, we do a lot of uh, even free ones for the Mars Society and help them out verifying some of their equipment for Mars-like conditions. You're saying so you're now moving beyond ballooning, though, in terms of... Sli slightly. <laughs> we uh, are building a number of things. One of them is a stratospheric airship that is 40 metres long, if we get the money for it. Um, but we will produce a small 7 metre long version and put it together out of bits and pieces. And uh, if it's successful, I doubt whether we'll be having any problem getting the money for the big one. So uh, what would its potential uses be? To sit in the stratosphere relaying 
pictures, data, radio systems, whatever's required, because it would revolutionise telecommunications. It would uh, allow you to have a geostationary object in the sky, one that just stayed in position, um, very close to the ground, because to have that sort of thing in space, that's 36,000 kilometres away, and the signal levels are just you know, impossible. We use them all the time. Um, they're used for uh, basically all the data and voice circuits that go um, via space between countries and satellites. They're that far out. All the satellite TV um, that we saw even back in the Apollo mission days all bounced off satellites that are out there at 36,000 kilometres from the Earth. And there's a bit of a delay. It's about more than half a second, I think, by the time it gets back to Earth again. And they'll become unnecessary in the uh, scheme of things. You'll have, instead of satellite telephony, it'll just be stratospheric telephony. <laughs> um, and you could beam a free Wi-Fi signal to an entire region. Well, these, um, unless there are big mountains in the way, these um, drones at, uh, well, at um, 20 kilometres altitude will cover around about 900 kilometres in diameter. So you'd only need about 30 to 40 in all of Australia to cover the whole country. And they can signal to each other. They can see each other in the sky. They can link up and uh, provide all sorts of redundancy and uh, fabulous opportunities. And when are you planning to have the first of these, uh, the, the seven-metre version? I'd like to do it within the next 12 months. But a lot's happening. and I'll, you know, It may be that we have to just put that aside for a year or so. Um, but if we have enough money and enough people that are going to help it can proceed as well but that would be like the iPhone coming into existence it would revolutionise communications around the world So you're going to the United States soon to do some tests on another project, can you tell me about that? Right, yes well first up I'll be going to Space Fest to talk and uh, at a conference there, a major space conference where all of the remaining um, Apollo astronauts will be. I will be meeting up with a lot of these people, Skylab, um, even Russian cosmonauts and everything. It's just a massive opportunity. And I'm one of the speakers that have spoken regularly for almost the last 10 years at that conference. So I'm very privileged to be part of that uh, bigger picture. Uh, now, while we're over there, we'll be launching a small rocket to about six kilometres. And uh, only six kilometres, not into space. It's designed to carry up a test probe for an exercise we're doing for a Mars mission, which is to take a bunch of probes to Mars, jettison them, jettison them from a hopefully NASA um, spacecraft that's coming into land. That's seven minutes of terror. Uh, yes, that's a cockatoo <laughs> screaming about the seven minutes of terror. Um, the uh, seven minutes of terror, they, uh, they'll eject us as part of the normal program of ejecting counterweights and our probes will make it down to Mars and have to survive a 400 to 600 kilometre per hour impact. So we're starting to build these uh, probes in test mode at the moment. Uh, we'll be doing some work next year at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra where we'll be using their gas gun which is capable of uh, firing 
these heavy probes um, at the required speed into a simulated bit of uh, material like a, uh, a cubic metre of uh, sand or a cubic metre of frozen sand, uh, clay, frozen clay, rocks, frozen rocks, uh, all of this so that we can work out how it will perform depending on what it hits and what angles, what speed we can uh, comfortably hit at, what angles we can hit at. Um, so the purpose of these probes is to survive and impact on Mars and be able to then relay data back, is that correct? That's, that's right, and it will be looking for methane on Mars, the Mars Median Mission, um, which is designed by uh, one of our team, uh, Nick Howes, he's an astronomer and now building spacecraft in the UK. Uh, and he's uh, basically, uh, he invented that. He also um, has been in the person pushing the um, search for Snoopy, which is the Apollo 10 lunar module. And he believes his team has found it, and NASA are sort of 98% sure they've found it. Um, so he's been on the news very recently in the past few weeks on uh, all the news stations. So when do you hope that your probe might actually land on Mars? In a oh, Look, it could be six years away. And we need that time for all the testing that's going on and NASA has to be very sure that we're not going to disturb their systems on the spacecraft. They don't want a free ride to Mars to be a problem for and them. When is NASA planning on going to Mars? It's hard to say. It's not been scheduled exactly yet, but they do have a payload return mission they want to run, which will put a lander on Mars, which will have a rocket on it to send back samples from the rovers. The rovers will come and dump the sample in, into the uh, spacecraft and it'll take off again and go back to Earth. If we've discovered a methane vent, which is what the aim is, to triangulate methane that flows over with different wind directions over different uh, probes we can um, effectively then tell, tell the uh, rover where to go to sniff out methane. And when they do that, they should have enough density of methane to determine whether the isotopes that they find are from life or whether it's just chemical. And then you can send us the uh, Nobel Prize in science, please. I hope that you get that. <laughs> I don't think so. You never know. Well, Robert, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing your incredible history, and uh, I wish you all the best with your future space endeavours. I'm sure we'll talk again if I do. Keep boldly going, sir. I will. Thank you very much. I'm Michael Adams, and this has been Forgotten Australia In Conversation. If you like the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes. And don't forget to check out the website, ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page, Forgotten Oz Podcast, for Robert Brand's photos and videos and to learn more about other Forgotten Australia stories. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.